0: and we're going to be doing it by looking at Matthew. And uh, Matthew is full of information that uh, mostly Jews would uh, know. And a lot of Romans would not catch many of the references made in Matthew because Matthew was writing to Jews. So he's going to be bringing up things that only Jews would know. And we'll see that you know, later on when we get into uh uh, some of the miracles that we see performed by Jesus Christ he, in uh, in Matthew eight, he's going to heal a leper, and uh, then he's he's going to tell him, "Don't tell anybody. Go go straight to the priest and, and tell them. Show thyself to the priest and offer the gifts that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them." Now I I'm not sure where. He's going to get this stuff that he's to be offering this gift to. Uh, because there's a lot of gifts mentioned. If you go to Leviticus uh, 14. This is where you're going to see these references uh, to what this leper is supposed to do. Because there's a huge amount of instructions that we find in Leviticus 14 concerning if you've got somebody who's a leper. And you've come into the land of Canaan that was promised to the people and so Leviticus is telling them what to do and if you have this situation where there's a leper and they call, you know, in the second verse of Leviticus 14, this, this shall be the law of the leper and the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priests and the priests shall go forth out of the camp and the priests shall Look and behold if the plague of the leprosy be healed in the leper. So now what he's doing is he's giving a job to the priest by sending the leper to the, to the priest at the temple. He's not going to show anybody until he goes to the priest at the temple and shows himself. And then the priest is going to have to do all kinds of stuff. And, and I'm suspecting at that time the priests weren't doing all that stuff because lepers weren't getting healed. (laughs) They were, they were suffering and they were unclean. They, they weren't allowed to be anywhere. They couldn't bring an offering to the temple because they weren't clean. So he's, now the priest has to do all kinds of things to guarantee that this guy is, is clean. I mean, that's, it just starts with, you know, verse two. This shall be the law of the leper in the days of his cleansing. But you get all the way up to verse 45 and he's saying, and he shall, he shall break down the house, the stone of it, the timber of it, and all the mortar of the house. And he shall carry them out of the city. Into an unclean place. So, uh, you know, this, this guy's got, you know, 45 verses of stuff to do. <laughs> now that he has uh, got this leper who's come uh, to see him. And so, you, you're dealing with this situation and now what does it all amount to? What What is going to be going on? With the priest when this leper shows up and say that this guy Jesus Christ has healed me and what am I going to do about it uh what what is the priest gonna do about it He he's got all he's got a huge job ahead of him because and he hasn't probably done it for a long time he's gonna to have to consult the scriptures probably to even know what to do, but it's just one little tiny line. In uh, Matthew 8. And if you don't understand all the ramifications. And and to tell you the truth. If you go through Leviticus 8. On that page they talk about turtle doves. Of course we've got an article up on turtle doves. Whenever you see that word turtle doves. They're they're telling you something extra. Because there was a turtle dove goddess in Sumer. And there was the altars of Nasi. Which was, you know, the turtle dove goddess was Nisi, but Moses set up the the altars of Jehovah Nisi, and so it was like the turtle dove goddess altars, but not. And if you don't know the distinction between the turtle dove goddess altars and the altars of Jehovah. The Jehovah Nisi altars. You won't know what's going on. And of course most people don't know the difference. Most Christians don't know the difference. <laughs> most Jews don't seem to know the difference. Because they think religion is about what you think. They don't, they don't have any idea that religion is about how you take care of the needy of your society. Because, and th- that's one of the strong delusions. And, of course, Christ was attacking their delusions all the time. Kind of snuck up on them with it. And then he was very charismatic and he was doing these miracles so that people, because of all the signs and wonders that surrounded Jesus, they were willing to listen to him. And Matthew talks about a lot of the things that Jesus says. Some of the chapters of Matthew, they're all red letter. It's all just... The doctrine of Jesus. What he's telling people to do and not do. You won't find most of those statements. Recorded by Matthew. As the words of Jesus Christ. In in the uh, doctrines of most churches. When I looked at the doctrines of church after church after church. I found almost none of the words of Jesus. In their doctrines. And you think, oh, that's kind of amazing. You might find more quotes from Paul than you find from Jesus. And in many people's case, they start—they're—they're they're going to explain to you their personal doctrines or the doctrines of their church. They're quoting Paul. And there used to be a program uh, on the station that I—that I'm on in the afternoon, where they were they just for an hour or two hours they would just badmouth Paul because as Paul was not a prophet that, that that the reason Paul's in the Bible is because he wasn't he wasn't preaching Christ but i believe that Paul was preaching Christ and and that's what it says is that he preached Christ first and but he was preaching to people who already knew what Christ said <laughs> so he wasn't constantly repeating Christ But he was explaining how the doctrines of Christ were implemented. But one of the the chief ways in which Paul was explaining how the doctrines of Christ were implemented was he was implementing them. I mean, where do you see Paul show up? I mean, obviously you see him as Saul. He's kind of persecuting Christians. But then later when they call him Paul... That he is actually going out and feeding them during dearths. He he's collecting funds and bringing it to uh, people in other countries, other city states. You know, from Gaul to Corinth to Corinth to Ephesus to Syria. He's traveling around just to say hi. No, he's collecting funds and moving them. Where they needed to be. Which we saw right away in Acts. With all the ministers of Christ. They were rightly dividing bread from house to house. Well Paul was rightly dividing the bread from city state to city state. Because he was the faith emergency ministry auxiliary. You could call that FEMA today. But of course there's two FEMA's today there's the faith emergency ministry auxiliary and then there's the other FEMA well the other FEMA is fashioned like the goddess of the turtle dove like the goddess of Sumer like the goddess of Ishtar and they provide for the needy of society but they provide for the needy of society through men who exercise authority one over the other. You know, and and force the contributions of one class of citizens or one group or, you know, they tax somebody to take away from this group and then the priests of that altar redistribute it. And that's, that's we call that FEMA today, standing for Federal Emergency Management, Agency. But that's that's like the altars of Nisi, which was a civil altar of Sumer. Now, if you don't know that, if you're just listening to us for the first time, you might want to go to preparingyou.com and uh, look up Sumer, or look up Goddess, or look up Turtle Turtledove, and read some of the articles, or even Jehovah Nisi. You can look that up. Because that was an altar created by Moses. After they had a battle, they needed to create this altar. Now, you you go ask the average Jew or the, even the average a, rabbi. So what, what? What was the purpose of that altar? Well, they they were thankful because God had you know helped them out, and so we're going to all go there and burn up sheep and sacrifices on this altar to show our love for God. What about all the guys who got wounded? I mean, when they were fighting those guys, those guys had sharp things. I'm sure somebody got wounded. They were fighting all day long. I bet you some guys got killed. And now they have widows. Now they have orphans. In the camp. And so Moses saw they needed the altar of Jehovah Nisi. And he built it. And you're saying that he built it so you could burn up stuff? Well, it, it, they're burnt offerings. They mentioned burnt offerings in Leviticus 14. They, they mentioned trespass offerings and all kinds of different offerings. Sin offerings. What were these things? Well, we've gone through a lot of that in our study of Exodus, because that's Old Testament. But here we are in the New Testament. You know, looking at Matthew 8. Now we're going to look at Matthew 4 today. We're going to go through Matthew 4. But I I'm I'm showing you where Matthew is kind of taking people because Matthew knows all these rules. He probably knows the Essene perspective on these rules. He probably knows the Pharisees' perspective on these rules and even the Sadducees or maybe even the Zealots' perspective on these rules, because that's been a hot topic all over Judea and all over the Roman Empire for years and years. That was in the news. And so people knew at that time that the Essenes had a different interpretation of the Torah than the Pharisees. And that certainly the Zealots had a different interpretation than the Pharisees. And a lot of people had a different interpretation than the Sadducees. And they believed all kinds of things. I mean, the Sadducees thought, you know, you're dead, you're dead, that's it. There's no afterlife. You're just dead. Pharisees believed that there was an afterlife. Many of them believed that there was reincarnation. That was very common belief at that time. Now, you can find some Christians today that have just as varied beliefs... And doctrines. And, and you know, because there's 40,000 different denominations. But if you're the church established by Christ, if you're a part of that, if you're following that, if you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because that's really how you become, you know, part of the church community, etc., is that you're actually doing what Jesus said. You, your doctrine should be the doctrines of Jesus. And as we go through the doctrines of Jesus, which are what Jesus taught, that's what doctrines are, is your teachings, we're going to put them in the perspective that Matthew understands them. Because Matthew understood these rules of the Jews. And so, uh, we'll save a lot of that Concerning the law of the leper, when we get to Matthew 8. But like I said, today we're gonna to do Matthew 4. And I noticed I, I was still editing it right up to the <laughs> moment of the program, but, uh, uh, and I'll probably edit it more because there's so many different layers of this, and so we create a side panel on the page, and we uh, put footnotes in and uh, connect it to other parts of you know the Old Testament because Matthew's going to go back to the Old Testament because that's what that's all they had at that time. But Matthew is the beginning of this New Testament, and of course. We're also told that you know they did away with the Old Testament. You know we weren't under the law anymore, and this is a really a common misinterpretation. Christ very, very clearly said he came to fulfill the law, and and that he even says that if you love me, you will still keep the commandments. Even talks about the statutes of Moses, but. Which is why we started mostly with the Old Testament and the prophets. And we we will probably return to that. God gives us enough time. But the whole point of doing that is so that we would have a better understanding of the New Testament. Which is why Jesus is constantly referring to the Old Testament. And even Paul referred to the Old Testament. But the law that the Christians were not under was the law as prescribed by the Pharisees. Because at that particular time when Jesus comes on the scene, and and Matthew will eventually point this out, Jesus tells the Pharisees who sit in the seat of Moses that he's going to take the kingdom away from them. He's going to take the kingdom away from them. I just was hearing somebody telling me, just before the show that Israel over there in the Middle East is at war with Hamas with rockets. I guess there's a bunch of rockets fired off and and they're firing rockets back, I guess and everything. I don't have any of the details, but anyway the that that battle is still going on today, but let me ask you this if if Jesus is taking the kingdom away from the Pharisees who were sitting in the seat of Moses. And then he said he was going to appoint it to another group, which we see in Matthew and even in Mark and Luke, that he's appointing it to his little flock, to the apostles. And then we see the apostles rightly dividing the bread from house to house, taking care of the widows and orphans, Dividing what bread? The bread that people offer them, the, the sacrifice, you know, and the bread means the meats, you know, it's, it's a meat sacrifice. The meat sacrifice consisted of measures of flour and oil and, and uh, that was put into the hands of the ministers and they rightly divided these possessions from house to house. That's what it means, dividing the bread from house to house. So, everybody went to the temple to get their welfare or to the network of temples, uh, which is, again, Christ is building a temple without hands, out of living stones. So, they didn't have to go all the way down to this stone structure that was going to be torn down. So, there wasn't a stone upon a stone, which is in itself is a metaphor. Which is why Jesus is sending the leper to the priest, who by verse 45 in that Leviticus 14 may have to disassemble the house because this leper is in it. Of course, this is where the leper is. Lepers had to wear a certain kind of clothes. They had to make certain noise. They would like have a bell or something that they would clack or something so that you knew lepers were coming, so you could avoid them. He sent this leper, still wearing that outfit, to the priest. But there's the law of the leper that was written way back by Moses, recorded in Leviticus 14. Now this priest is going to have to disassemble a house stone by stone, beam by beam. After he goes, you know, by the time you get to verse 45 from verse 2. And he's going to have to deal with all this. And I'm not sure he's... I think that just sending that leper was an attack on his delusion. Because at that particular time, the priests living at the temple were living in quarters that were more opulent than the king himself. Because they had already turned the temple into a den of thieves. Because they weren't following the pattern laid down by Moses. When he said, let's build us the altar of Jehovah Nisi. They were just building the altar of Nisi. And you don't know the distinction between those two altars. You don't understand the distinction between Moses and... And the Israelites and all the other nations round about them. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the distinction between Jesus and the church established by Jesus Christ and all the other churches round about us who are doing according to the turtle dove goddess of Sumer. And not according to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And at least in part because they didn't understand Matthew. So here we are to understand Matthew. We're gonna find out what Matthew was going to be telling us about. And we've we've already done uh you know, we've done quite a few programs on Matthew. I've been accumulating the audios. And uh putting them together so that eventually it will become one solid study and you can go through. But in every single one of our episodes trying to cover, whether it's chapter 2 or chapter 3, where we also cover the idea of what is evil, I'm sprinkling it with these other other passages from the Bible. Just as you would sprinkle salt upon your meal. Because... The salt of the modern church has lost its flavor. It's got emotion, got a lot of emotion, got a lot of theologies, got a lot of images of self-righteousness, a lot of, lot of doctrines, not, not a lot of really what Jesus said. And so we're going to try to always bring in what Jesus said, And since Jesus and Moses were in agreement, we're going to bring in what Moses said. And and that Jesus talks about all the prophets that he sent before that were persecuted, twisted, distorted by modern Jews and modern church alike. We're going to be sprinkling what these guys did and said into our studies of Matthew, whatever chapter we're in. And uh, when we do this, hopefully you also will invite the Holy Spirit into your own house and guide your own thinking concerning these most important matters. Because all the solutions of the world's problems, the world's problems today, whether it's rockets in the Middle East or COVID or uh, economy, uh They're all resolvable. The solution, the salvation from these problems are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it has to be the whole gospel. And so that's why we're going to look at Matthew 4 when we return to Keys to the Kingdom after a brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of Kingdom. So, we're looking at Matthew. And we've gone through Matthew 2 and Matthew 3 just recently, uh, last week. And so, although we started Matthew way back, there's been a number of shows in between. There's been a lot of other things going on. And some of those shows were actually very valuable. So, going back and looking at some of those shows may have value to you. But you have to use the Holy Spirit. But... Very clearly that we, we see where John the Baptist is preparing the way with this idea of repenting and uh, seeking the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. This, I mean, he was saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, to prepare ye the way of the Lord make his path straight well this is what christianity was called was called the way it's very clear that the pharisees were not going the way of moses it's pretty clear that the zealots weren't it's obviously clear that the 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 sadducees weren't uh, some of these seem seem to be pretty close but they weren't all the same either so we want to look at the different distinctions between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and those who did begin to follow Christ. Where was the conflict? Well, John the Baptist was out there in the wilderness because there was already a conflict. There was a conflict back with the days of Herod. And uh, so they, they wanted to hear John the Baptist. They didn't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem came to him. All of Judea were going out to him as we saw in Matthew 3. But then he talks to them, calling them generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It, it, so John the Baptist was warning them. because course, he's doing it out there in the wilderness. And he was real popular by them because he was doing all kinds of things for people you know, by creating this network of charity. Because he was saying, you know, how, when they asked him how it worked, he says, you know, if you have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have one share. do the same in meats. So what he was setting up was a way in which to redistribute the bread from house to house. To take care of the needy of society. To pure religion. Because when you do that, you will produce fruits. And those fruits include the social bonds of a free society. And so, that's how he was preparing the way. But he also talks about an axe is laid to the root of a tree that is not bearing fruit. It's going to be hewn down and thrown into a fire. So, he's warning of this. And he talks about somebody coming after him. If the people don't have the fruits of repentance... Repentance is thinking a different way. See, they had started thinking that the altars of Nisi and their civil altars of Nisi that we see in Sumer that were collecting from the people and even from their enemies, they would pillage their enemies and collect from them as well, that they, that this fund in the central treasury of the temples of The turtle dove goddess, or the goddess of Ishtar, or what they had in Egypt, or what they tried to create with the uh, golden calf, was a central fund, a reserve fund, so that in a time of famine they could go and they could buy grain from people round about them and they would, their loyalty would be centralized because their wealth was centralized. But no, Moses said no, no, no. We have to bind ourselves together with the fruits and repent of that way of thinking. And we bound ourselves together because we actually live by faith, hope, and charity. You don't find the word charity in the Old Testament, but you find the words free will offering. They live by free will offerings. And that was when they built Jehovah altar It was stated then, and it was stated in a lot of places in the Old Testament, that all the offerings had to be free will offerings. And they weren't just burned up. They were turned over to the priests. Read our article on sophistry. Read our articles on altars, and altars of clay and stone. That from the beginning, the altars of unhewn stone were living stones. Unhewn men. That was always living stones. That is always what Moses was teaching. Is that, because the same words in the Hebrew for a gathering of stones is a gathering of men, a gathering of friends. That men, men of charity. And, and this was creating a natural filtering that, that in their network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, which would also include a network of judges. Because of the fact that the court system of Israel was turned back to the people. Where they would form virtual juries to decide fact and law. We've gone through all this in earlier programs. So, if you're new, there's lots of information back there. But then he talks about the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus comes and gets baptized and, and at first he doesn't even want to baptize Jesus because he knows Jesus is, is of a higher spiritual quality than John the Baptist. You know, he, he, from the womb, John the Baptist had respect for Jesus. The person of Jesus. Because he leaps in the womb when Jesus just comes near. <laughs> The womb of Elizabeth and Matthew, in they're they're trying to tell us about this unique relationship to his older cousin, which is actually plays into the whole scheme of things. Which is there's layers and layers to these stories. But Jesus comes out of the water, and we go right into chapter four. Because Jesus goes up on the mountain in the wilderness. So it begins, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So he's led by the Spirit. Actually, somebody's going to interview me uh, in a couple of weeks. Join the network and find out the particulars. And And he wants to talk about how the Spirit... Of God has affected you in your life. And so, you know, I don't know, it's going to be a short program, but, uh, join the network and when it's available, we'll let you know. But, uh, Jesus is led by the Spirit to go up into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted by somebody they call the devil, the adversary. In verse 2, we see, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was afterwards and hungered. Sounds reasonable. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And he says, but he answered and said unto them, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But the question was about being the son of God. And of course we have a link to an article on the son of God. If you, it, it says in the beginning, uh, Matthew quotes it, where it talks about that Jesus will be called the son of God tells Mary that your son will be called the Son of God. Now, when Matthew wrote that, everybody, everybody, Jews, Romans, everybody, a part of the Roman Empire, knew who was called the Son of God before Jesus ever came on the scene. They knew who the Son of God was. It's headline news. It's been that way for years and years most of the Roman citizens, the actual queerest Roman citizens, the people who were part of the Roman Empire, knew who the Son of God was. It was Caesar. Caesar was the Son of God. That's the title. One of the titles of Caesar. Every year, people would go into their temples and have to fund the temple by burning incense. And that was the mark point of their funding. They... They would turn funds over, and they would burn incense as an outward sign that I'm giving to the Son of God, Caesar Augustus, or Caesar Tiberius, or Caesar Caligula. They they were doing this every year, once a year. This was required. So they knew who the Son of God was. He was the head of the New World Order of the Caesars. Then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to be called the Son of God. I'm sure Jesus heard that many times. This was the story. Of, if you if you look at the Gospel of James that we talked about, where it talked about Zechariah and the early days of Christ and and all that, they're very forthright about the fact that Jesus was going to be called the Son of God and that he was born in a particular way, Matthew probably read the Gospel of James. Now, some of the early people who put the Bible together for us did not like the Gospel of James, and some of them didn't like it. And the fact is, is the book was getting pretty big, and so that, it was left out. But still, it's a document of the time. It's, it's quoted by a lot of the other people who were writing back there in the early days of the church. And so we know it was around, but it didn't end up in what we call today the canon. But the idea that Jesus is the Son of God is right here in, in Matthew. But the Son of God, by everybody's standards at that time, before Jesus started his public life, was clearly Caesar. So to call yourself the son of God, or to be called the son of God by some of the people in Rome, was a recipe for disaster. Because there's only one son of God. It's either Caesar or it's Jesus Christ. And which one you chooses, which one you choose, will also be the altar that you go to. Will you go to the altar of Nisi? Or Jehovah Nisi. For, for your welfare. Because the altar of Nisi is a snare. We know that from Proverbs. We know that from all of the prophets. Who say it over and over again. There is an altar. David said it. That is, that should have been for your welfare that is a snare. Paul quotes David in the New Testament. Now people go and read Paul and get their doctrine from Paul. If they don't know these connections back to the Old Testament and what the altars were, they may be confused in their doctrines and not understand the significance of who the Son of God is. Because the Son of God is the head of the altars. He's the guy in charge of the altars. The system of charity. The system of welfare that everybody is dependent upon for their welfare, he's in charge. But here comes the tempter and says, "If thou be the son of God, the char- the guy in charge of the social welfare of society, like Caesar, then." You could command these stones be made into bread. Now, the way we take that metaphor, we imagine that he's going to pick up rocks and turn them into bread, loaves of bread. And that if if you had a reenactment, that's what they're going to be doing. But if you also don't know that the stones of the altar, the living stones of the altar, were the ministers of that system of welfare. And he's saying, will you turn those stones into bread for you, like the high priests had been doing already in Jerusalem, because we said at the beginning, they were living in quarters more opulent than the king himself. It was very lucrative to be a priest or high priest in Judea. There was a great deal of corruption in that government office was a government office because he was in charge of the social welfare system of Judea. And so for all the stuff that would come up to the temple to be put into that central treasury at the temple and then trickle down to the people as they had needs, he was able to take a portion of it for himself. Now, in the Old Testament, they were to... Have it brought up and then he would have this wave offering where he would send it back down. That's what the wave offering was. Today, people think it's about shaking barley up in the air. They have a little ceremony where they, they shake the barley up in the air, but they keep the stuff. You know, like the old joke I told you. you have to go back over. We're not going to go through it again, but it's, you know, the, the, the priest and the minister and the rabbi discussing how they decide what of the offering goes to God and what goes to himself. Well, God doesn't need any of it. (laughs) You know, going back to George Carlin, the, uh, the, the comedian. God can't handle money, evidently, according to George Carlin, the comedian. Well, God doesn't handle money. You pick ministers that handle the money. Yeah, and Right now, your ministers of your religion, of how you take care of the needy of your society, they're in Washington D.C. or you know whatever the capital of Australia is, or London or wherever. That that's who's taking care of the needy of your society. Churches don't do that anymore. They they depend upon the men who exercise authority. To take care of the needy of society. You don't, you know, if you get cancer and, and, and you're in a, you know, assisted living or whatever and, and you need to have treatment for your cancer, you don't go to Jesus Christ, you go to the government. Medicare, Medicaid. Social Security. I mean, even take care of your parents. You go to the men who exercise authority. You don't go to church if you lose your job and you have no money and you can't pay your rent, and you don't go to church. You know go the government. The men who exercise authority. Now, Matthew will tell you, you're not to do that because he's going to quote Jesus and say it's not to be that way with you. But it is that way with the modern Christian. In order to get to that point where we start understanding what Matthew is talking about, We're starting here today in uh, Matthew 4. Jesus isn't going to turn the stones of the altar into bread for him. He's not going to live in opulent headquarters. When he was hailed as the highest son of David, when he was uh, firing the money changers, who were the porters of the temple, which we have an article on, look up money changers, only the king could do that. Only the king or high priest could do that. Since the days of David. If you don't know that only the king and high priest could do that, you don't know what firing the money changers was all about. If you don't know what the money changers were doing, what the porters of the temple were doing, you you don't know what the story of the money changers is all about. And so that's why it's important to understand, because Matthew knew... And Matthew's telling you the story. But if somebody leaves out parts of the story, like, oh, I didn't know that, then you're not going to get it. So, by verse 4, he's answered, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you think the high priest, at at that particular time, it wasn't Caiaphas, later on it will be Caiaphas, Do you think he was listening to the words coming out of the mouth of God? The healing ability of Christ tells me that Christ was receiving the Word of God in his being moment by moment, day by day. Because the Word of God is what brings all life. It's not the words printed on the page. Those are words printed on the page, but the Word of God actually creates life, heals. As the Word of God comes to you, it goes out to others. It can heal. Paul healed. Paul evidently had some problems himself that were not healed. And he carried that burden. But that healing was coming from the Word of God. And the best we can hope for is to become conduits. And the way to become conduits is repent. Think differently. Understand what the gospel of Matthew is really all about. Verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city. A separate city. And setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus said unto him, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now these are the temptations of Christ that, and, and, and you know we have a whole article on the temptations of Christ that go into this in much more detail. But basically these are the temptations that each of us face. First is it's about using other people to put bread on our own table. And here it's about tempting God, one of the names for God in ancient cultures is fate. They knew, even in the altars of Nisi, not Jehovah Nisi, but in the Sumer altars of the turtle dove goddess, they knew that what you do in this life had an effect on the world around you. That each of us have some sort of creative influence on the world around us. Certainly in your own household, if you're fighting and you're you're angry and and you're angry with your spouse and you speak cruel words to your spouse, are are, are you critical of them, not loving and patient and all that stuff? Or with your children, that's going to have an effect on your children. We can see the emotional trauma going through the relationship in that house. And people can walk in that house and they can feel the tension. We say that. We feel the tension in this house. You can come into a room where somebody was just arguing. And you didn't even hear the argument. But you feel the tension. I can tell you stories about that because I'm very sensitive to that. Because we live out here so far. I mean, you just go into... we, We have the thing where you go into town... And, and we're mingling amongst hundreds and hundreds of people because you're in stores, etc. And you're picking up on all the tension in every, everybody's life. Because the, the, it's, it's coming out of them. It's like energy coming out of them. Well, Jesus had an energy coming out of him, too. We see it with the lady who touches the hem of his garment and is instantly healed. And he feels what he calls the virtue go out of him. But what? why is he fasting up here? He's not just fasting. He's fasting and praying. He's fasting from all the things of life that are a distraction. To receive the word of God coming into him. So he can begin his ministry. And so that he can be filled with this Holy Spirit and, and come down. But with that power comes temptation. Always. Power corrupts because with power comes temptation. So he's going to be the son of God. Called the son of God. He's going to have the power... To turn the stones of the altar into bread for himself like the high priest is already doing. Which is why the high priest is living in these opulent headquarters. But Jesus isn't going to do that because he knows that that will not bring the life of God into him. It will distract him from it. You know, but tell that to the people in government taking millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of dollars in corruption. We saw. You know, in an article on Article 2, Section 22, that was a story that we told about Oregon. Where the people of Oregon robbed themselves of their rights because they lacked knowledge. We saw it taking place. And then we can show you, it's a matter of record, that the the governor of Oregon at that time was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars, accumulating millions of dollars in graft and corruption. It's a matter of record. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back. So we were talking about corruption... Corruption in the world, corruption in the priesthood at the time of Jesus Christ. We've got an article up on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, about this same time, walked out because of corruption. It was immediately that the place where they walked out of was immediately refilled by other people claiming to be the Sanhedrin. And we'll see eventually that Jesus appoints 70 which is what consists of the Sanhedrin, that's 70 guys normally, 70, 71, 72 guys, depending on the role that they play. And, uh, it was because of corruption. So while the priests of the temple were living high on the hog in opulent, the reason I say they lived in these more opulent headquarters is because of the excavations that go on in Israel, they eventually got down to excavating the ancient priesthood's uh, quarters and they found them more lavish more expense was paid in the production of these quarters where they lived than even amongst Herod and his you know like Masada and places like that that they, it was extremely lucrative they made lots of money I mean when Billy Graham died he's worth 25 million dollars Billy Graham was a lot more moral than many of these other evangelists. I mean, frankly, Graham's still worth $10 million. That's that's a lot of money. But Jesus was this poor carpenter, right? I mean, Joseph was a poor carpenter. Well, he actually wasn't. Jesus was rich, came from one of the richest families in Judea. His uncle was one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. Uh, On his mother's side. You you think that he's going to be this rich guy going all over Rome, and uh, and Mary's living in squalor or something? No, no. It even tells us in Second Corinthians eight nine that though he was rich, for your sake he made himself poor. So he became poor. Through his poverty, you might be rich. No, that's not what Billy Graham did. And I don't want to pick on Billy Graham. He was a pretty nice guy, according to most people, it seems to be. I mean, Franklin's, you know, I, I think he's a lost soul. Well, I'm, I'm not even 100%. I mean, Billy Graham's biggest fear, out of his own mouth, is that when he meets God, that God would say, get you from me, I know you not. That was his biggest fear, this man of faith. He, out of his own mouth, he said that. I don't know. I thought that was pretty amazing. But, you know, maybe there was something to that. But he, according to all the evidence, he's worth $25 million when he passed away. That's a lot. There's a lot of pastors who are richer than that, especially in Africa. It's amazing the number of preachers in Africa that are just ridiculously wealthy. People just pour the money at them. And, and it's astounding. Meanwhile, most of the social welfare in Billy Graham's churches, Franklin Graham's churches, and, and there's a lot of other guys I could name, I just, they're just on the top of my head, and I, I quickly looked them up at the break and see what they're worth. You just Google it and will find out. But Jesus was, was worth millions and he slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. He fasted for forty days, so that he would go down and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and just touch somebody, and they they could be healed. That's 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 a man of service, and of course, all his disciples, which are students of his kingdom, he's going to teach them how to be men of service, to provide pure religion to the people, through free will offerings alone. People will tell you that's impossible. Well, it's impossible if you're not Christians. It's very possible if you are Christians. But in order to understand that, you have to admit that you're not Christian now. But that's a good news to find out that you're not a Christian now. Because now you have time to repent. And you can become a Christian. You can actually even get born again. Uh, But I know a lot of people already want to think they're born again. But of course a lot of the uh, the Pharisees wanted to think that they were children of Moses. But they didn't even know Moses. This pattern keeps repeating itself throughout history. It's called delusion. And one delusion leads to another delusion. Until you pervert the natural use of man and woman and people don't even know if they are a man or a woman. I mean, that was one of the things with the zealots at that time. There were a lot of men who were dressing up like women. And, uh, you know, I mean, the stories were that you know the zealots would go around and try to find these people that they would think is perverse and they would actually kill them. Of course, that's not what Christians did. But zealots would do that. Of course, the zealots are the ones who ended up in Masada all killing each other. They, they were men of faith, but they had a faith in their image of religion. They had a faith in the doctrines of their religion. But religion, again, is how you take care of the needy of society. And because if you don't take care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, your only alternative is to either neglect them altogether or take care of them with force, fear, Which ends in fealty. Where you become subject to the sons of God that rule your nation. And they have too much power. And they fall to these temptations. And they turn their positions into grafting corruption. Where they take millions and millions of dollars. Like I was saying, the governor at the the time of Article 2, Section 22 was... So, uh, at least one donation was $200,000 in her campaign fund from George Soros. And she'd already announced she wasn't going to run again. So why is he giving her $200,000 for her campaign fund? Well, it's tax free. It's public record. It goes into that fund. She can take out of that fund anytime she wants. She may have to pay taxes on it if she takes out of it, but she could borrow against it. She had several million dollars in her fund, mostly from out of the state. Article 2, Section 22 said that all your campaign donations, only 10% could come from outside of your district. This was passed by the people of Oregon in 1990s and became a part of the Constitution of Oregon, Article 2, Section 22. To protect, because they saw outside money coming into Oregon, influencing Oregon politics. And they wanted to put an end to that. And they did. They thought. But nobody enforced the law. By the time, you know, I come along and report on this, almost 80% of all the Candidates, depending on where you draw the line, from mayors to to uh, congressmen, to senators, to governor, they were all in violation. Some to greater or lesser degree. But if you had over ten percent of your donations coming from outside of the state or outside of the district in which you're running, you couldn't keep it. If you kept it, if if you kept it, if you accepted it, you lose your right to the office automatically. You're thrown out of office. Your office is no longer valid. You have no more power in your office. And you can't even run for that office again for several years. The problem was, when he brought this to the attention of the Republicans, because most of the Democrats were guilty, the governor was guilty. I mean, this is, you have to remember in the time, people were fleeing the state. Senators were fleeing the state so that they could not Vote on bills they knew were disastrous, but, they, it, but if they couldn't get a quorum, they couldn't pass them. So they fled the state. As This has been a practice a long time in American history. Uh, Lincoln did it. Lincoln actually jumped out of a window so that he, they would not have enough people to vote so that uh, that they couldn't pass a bill that he was against. So it's a tactic, it's kind of a hokey thing, but sometimes desperate times have desperate measures. So this was going on in Oregon when Article two, Section Twenty was overthrown twenty two was overthrown. It was overthrown by the people because they were they're stupid. They lack knowledge. And the media was controlled, and the media said, Oh, we have to do this to stop corruption, when it was actually being passed to increase corruption. Same thing going on In Judea, they had corruption. People walking out of the Sanhedrin saying, we're not going to even be a part of this anymore. This is so corrupt. For one thing, the Sanhedrin didn't really have legislative power originally when it was created by Moses. It had developed that. You go read the article and find out how they developed legislative power. But it's because the people had perverted the purpose of the altars. And had taken on altars like the altar of Nisi rather than the altar of Jehovah Nisi. And now there was room for corruption. Because the people were not respecting the responsibility that is correlative to their rights. So anyway, we we kind of covered that. So these temptations... That we see facing Jesus are facing your politicians. They're facing your priests, your rabbis, your ministers every day. And youth can think like they did in the time of 1 Samuel 8. That if we just had a strong ruler who could straighten things out, we could fix this. No. The system was set up that you have to fix it. And it's easier for you to fix if you actually care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Your neighbor's rights, your neighbor's possessions, etc. But you have become accustomed to living at the expense of your neighbor and have developed an appetite for benefits that are provided from the property of your neighbor. And so you don't think you have the ability to alter the outcome that you see all about you, the corruption. But you do. But you may have to do some fasting, like Jesus Christ. You may have to face some temptations. He was alone. You may be able to gather together. Eventually, though, you have to realize that you're going to face these temptations alone. So in verse 5 we say, Then the devil, taking him up to this holy city and set him in this pinnacle, Saith unto him, If thou be the son of God, to throw yourself down. Well, you know, put your put your life in peril, and God will save you. Now, who's doing that? Who's who's throwing themselves off a pinnacle? You know, it's a, and you think you're going to be saved? I can tell you, he's doing that. You go to our Guru page. And and you will you will see reference to all kinds of people who are doing it. They're jumping out of the system. They're they're throwing themselves out there, they're not repenting, they're not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they're not building the altars of Jehovah Nisi, they're not gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and caring for one another. In many cases, they're not even taking care of their parents. But they're jumping out of the system like Jesus would be jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. And they say, well, God will save me. But Jesus says unto him, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. All these guys trying to get out of this corrupt system, cheating on their taxes, or not paying any taxes at all. That is not the answer. Jesus is very clear about that, and we'll see that in Matthew. The answer is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is a government that operates by faith, hope, and charity. By love, which is what charity means. Charity, love, every time I say it, free will offering, that's all the same thing. That's what you have to do. So those are the two temptations. That you stay in the system and turn the system into bread for you. And, of course, everybody has done that. I mean, if, if you send your kids to public school, you've turned your neighbor's house into bread for you. You get free education at the expense of your neighbor. You've t- turned your your your, bre- your your neighbor into bread for you. And the system into bread for you. It was when we home-taught our kids... There was a lot of times where I couldn't go out and make money because I was working on their education. Fortunately, my wife could handle a great deal of the care of the kids while I was gone away to work. But then she couldn't go out work. So we were a single family income in a place that was one of the poorest counties in the state of Oregon. <laughs> but I mean, we're not complaining because we learned so much. As much from our children as we did in teaching our children. So, that's very important. But again, it says in verse 8, The devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world. What world is that? All the kingdoms of the planet? All the kingdoms of the world, it says. And the word there, world, means constitutional order or system of government. And Jesus' kingdom is not a part of that world. But, the devil is showing him all these kingdoms and the glory of them. And said unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now this is this story is a story of every man's temptation. Because Jesus has abilities. Jesus has power. He could go out there and he could actually make this happen. You have power. Not as much as Jesus, but you can design your life to get more and more power in the world. More and more influence in the world. And and there's nothing wrong with being a success and creating a successful business and, 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 and prospering. But again, like we studied in Ecclesiastes, you can't just do it for yourself. You'll cut yourself off from the tree of life. And you won't know what to do, you'll be lost. But it says all these things he would give him if he just served, that's what worship means, served his, this, this devil, whoever this devil's purposes are. Which are selfish purposes. But then he says, Jesus unto him, say Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, adversary. That's what Satan means. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He asked him to worship him. He says, thou serve. Because worship is service. It's support. Remember the Magi, they came They came to worship this baby king. And they gave him gold, frankincense, myrrh, all very valuable stuff. And that was the way they worshipped because they served, they donated of what they had to him to serve. So, then the devil leaveth him. And behold, angels, we don't know what those angels are, uh The word could be messengers. We have, a, you know, a lot. The reason I point this out is, if I mention angels, you got have a lot of images that pop up in your mind as to what angels are, and they could be a lot of things. It's not a very specific term. But somebody came and ministered unto him. He'd been fasting for forty days and forty nights, and facing the demons that we all face, the temptations that we all face. And he overcame those temptations. Now in verse 12 it says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. So all this is kind of coming along pretty close on the heels of each other. The leaving, He says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast and the borders of Zebulon and Nephilim. Nephthalim, and anyway, in verse fourteen, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of in Isaiah, that uh, the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. So, there's prophecy. I should put footnotes in here so you can see where those prophecies are. But I can tell you this. The names of those places had meaning back there when you go look at them in the Old Testament. And that there was a reason why they were mentioning these different names. And as you go to some of our older studies and you'll see this. The people which sat in darkness saw a great light and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death Light is sprung up. So what he's saying is this is the beginning of the ministry and Jesus was that great light. And those who sat in darkness could now see this great light. But like I said before, the, the light of righteousness is like the love of Christ, the love from Christ, is like hot coals on the head of those who do not love the light. So, you had to have ministers come along and create a false doctrine of Christ. And, of course, Jesus told us that this would happen. So that you could deceive many people into following this false image of Christ. And they would continue to sit in darkness. And they would not repent. And, therefore, they would not produce the fruits worthy of repentance. But Matthew writes in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, I mentioned before that only Matthew mentions kingdom of heaven. Uh, Everybody else just uses kingdom of God. Matthew will also say kingdom of God at times, but virtually the the same. They mean the same. Although the, the kingdom, Basilius, Oranos, which is what we translate into Kingdom of Heaven, is best translated Kingdom of the World. Because remember that Jesus is the Son of God, there already is a Son of God, who is the ruler of the religious system of the world, the constitutional order and system of the Roman Empire. And Jesus is coming along saying that my kingdom is not of that world, it's a different kingdom, it's a separate kingdom, it's a holy kingdom, That's what holy means is separate. And that he is the son of God of that kingdom. One is operating according to the unrighteous mammon and will fail. And the other one will not die, will continue. Unfortunately, it will have many masquerading as it in the last days, saying that we're, you know, we're anointed by God, we're anointed by God, we're anointed by God, but they're not. You're going to have to, only way you're going to be able to tell the difference for sure, I can give you a lot of information on what to look for and not look for, but the only way you're going to really know for sure is the Holy Spirit. But you're only going to receive the Holy Spirit if you repent and seek the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand, within your reach. It's still within your reach. But you have to do that repenting, thinking differently. You can't think like the people of Sumer, where their goddess, their turtle dove goddess of Nisi. You have to think like the early Israelites who were being taught by Moses, where you had an altar of Jehovah Nisi, where the people sacrificed for the welfare of the needy. And, and, you know, one of the hints are is that your ministers are not going to be multimillionaires. Your ministers are not going to be telling you to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. You know, he's not going to take you to the edge of the desert and say, You're free, run for it. He's going to, he, he is commanded by Christ to make you gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Make you, he's commanded to make you gather in that. In order to rightly divide the bread from house to house. And if the early Christian church did not do that, Paul wouldn't have known where to take The aid that he brought during the durst, that came about because of corruption. Because, you know, people, the welfare state, people were not doing the work that they needed. They could get by on welfare. Half of the city of Rome was on the government dole by the time that Nero took over. Which is the height of the Christian movement. The the awakening wasn't that people were getting all emotional and thinking, oh, I love Jesus. The awakening was that they, they loved one another. They loved Jesus, and they abided in Jesus, but they kept his commandments to not covet their neighbor's goods, not go to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, but to repent and live by faith, hope, and charity. You ready to do that? Well, we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. So be right back. Okay, welcome back. Well, we, we got to uh, verse 17, which is basically, this is the doctrine of Christ, is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another way of saying that is within your reach. It's not where you go when you die. It's for the living. He'll tell you that later. But it's it's within your reach. And it's it's not a con job. But then the question is, you need to know what the kingdom of heaven is. Of course, we have a link there to the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, to give you an idea of what that is. And of course, that's what we've kind of been doing as we go along. But as we get into verse 18, Jesus is walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, eventually, and Andrew, his brother. So Simon and Andrew, Peter's brother, uh, is right there, and they're casting a net into the sea, For they were fishers. And he saith unto him, Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And they straight away left their nets and followed him. So according to this, you know, despite what the movie sometimes looks like, depending on what movie you watch, Peter and Andrew just right away go. You know, Andrew supposedly knew John the Baptist and all this stuff, but they were they were fishing. And he says, Come follow me. Uh, they're, They're hot on his trail right away. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his own brother. We can expect that, okay, he saw these two guys in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So this was clearly the the brother to Zebedee because they have the same father. And so they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So you see these bits and pieces. There's a lot of this in Matthew. Matthew's a little bit longer than like Mark. And so you've got a lot of these. John is the one that's really... The Gospel of what we call the Gospel of John, uh, which is actually the Gospel from the Johannian Society, uh, from the beloved disciple, uh, that's written much differently. But so we, when we go through all these Gospels, we're going to connect them back and forth. That's one of the things Jordan Peterson is so fascinated with that that you have all these things in the Bible that are connected back to other verses in the earlier books. How in the world did they do that? Well, some of these are lost in translation. Uh, but the reality is there is a connection. But hopefully, and, and you can see a lot of those connections without developing a, a vision of the pattern. So we need to start developing that division of this pattern that is laid out in the book. So Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, which is, a synagogue is ten families. That's, at that time, that's what a synagogue was. It was ten families. And, you know, the heads of families, all the, the sons of, the, of, a, of a grandfather, and their sons' sons, etc., and unmarried daughters. That was the family. So he's going to all the synagogues, all these different groups, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease amongst the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, which is different than a disease, evidently, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatics... So they're making a distinction. There are devils and there are lunatics. And then we can look at those words individually. I think I've done some articles on some of those things. And those that had the palsy, which is kind of a paralysis, and healed them. So there's all these manners of diseases he's is healing. And his fame is spreading all the way to Syria. And actually... We know eventually we'll see that it spread all the way to Rome. And there were envoys on the way to Jerusalem to get Jesus to bring him back to Rome when he was crucified. So all this is going to be condensed in a very short period of time, a few years, this ministry. And finally verse 25, and there followed him a great multitude of people from Galilee, from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, all this time he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel where the government of the people is established for the people, by the people, and of the people. Where they have to give to take care of one another. And they talk about being fishers of men that were working with their nets, We know there is a welfare according to David and according to Paul and according to the prophets, according to Proverbs. There is a system of welfare that has dainties from rulers which is a snare and a net. They almost always say it. They don't always, but many, many times they say a snare and a net. And he's saying, we're going to make a different kind of net. We're going to catch men in a net, but it's not going to be a net that like the net of the turtle dove goddess of Ishtar and Nisi the tur- uh, it's not going to be a net like the the Nimrod who was a mighty provider instead of God and and brought all the people into his Babylon through this net of benefits at the expense of your neighbor, provided by men who exercise authority one over the other. Now, I just went from one end of the gospel to the other with parts of quotes. But there are quotes that a lot of people don't even know are in the Bible. They they have no history of the time. So anyway, in, in the side panel, we'll talk a little bit about that. We have a little bit of time. uh, But, I mean... I could add a lot more to this and of course there's a lot of links in here to other articles so that you can get more and more information so that you can start to put the gospel in the context of the time. But Jesus, from the beginning of this chapter, is led by the Spirit. And even though he's led by the Spirit, he is tempted. But he overcomes these temptations to to make turn his neighbor, to, to turn stones into a source of his own wealth and bread and, and to feed himself at the expense of others also to to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple and and tempt God save me because I am just I'm just leaping from this temple this corrupt temple because it is corrupt at that time I'm leaping from it I'm not going to do that. Because that's tempting God. And because Jesus said, don't tempt God by taking these ridiculous leaps. Now, He tells you what to do. He tells you to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But I know a lot of guys who've been leaping. You know, trying to escape the corruption by leaping from it. No, don't do that. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what you, that's what you have to do. And what was the last thing that they, what was the last problem that they have? Well, then of course you could just go and worship the devil, the Satan, the adversary to God. Well, who is the adversary to God? Well, it would be the other son of God. It would be Caesar. do serve Caesar, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know make you chairman of the board. I'll put you in high places I'll give you a really good job now it's it's fine to look for a good job it's fine to make money and fine to support your family nothing against that don't sell your soul to do it there there i just saw what what is it uh o m g uh the 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 guy who uh goes out there with his hidden cameras all the time now he's got a new organization. He calls it OMG. I don't know what it stands for. I mean, obviously it could stand for Oh My God. But uh, anyway, and he was uncovering something in Best Buys, where the people were you know, off on this tangent of uh, wokeism, and you had to take these classes in LBGT and, but you couldn't show your crucifix or anything religious, but the LBGT movement is a religious movement. But then again, Social Security is a religious movement. And it has gods that run it. And priests that minister to it. And it takes care of the widows and orphans and needy of society. But it is like the goddess of Sumer. It's a civil system of religion. It's public religion is what it calls. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Not going to turn people into bread for him. Not going to tempt God, but by the time we get down to verse 4, he desires for the free bread, especially those through covetous practices at the expense of your neighbor, is the root cause of the corruption of man, and often is made manifest through what we call today, or some will call today, certainly since the 1850s have called, legal charity. And men who exercise authority, men who force the offerings of the people through a legal civil government, and then the government redistributes the produce from that legal charity from house to house. Now, they also incorporate another system in that often, which is those ministers of that legal charity can borrow money against the future. Of course, that will curse your children with the debt, Uh, but they can also do that. And, but they, the purpose is, is to provide a social welfare for the people. You know, free stuff. At the expense of others. Through men who exercise authority. Now, we know Christ has forbid that. You know, I have a link to an article, exercise authority. I mean, he, he said it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to go to the governments of the world. The governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other, call themselves benefactors, provide benefits. It's not to be that way with you. So you know right away that anybody who's doing that is not really a Christian. Now, they may be doing that right now because they're on Social Security or they're on welfare. Okay, I got it. But repentance is a process of turning around and looking the other direction. Going the other way. And, and it's, it's time we go the other way. Now, I, I quote, just to put this in perspective, people of the time, Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, who, who saw that the problem with the free bread that Rome was handing out, and of course it's the same with the free bread that the Pharisees was handing out, which was provided by the Corbin of the Pharisees, which Jesus himself will say makes the Word of God to none effect. But Cicero says the evil was not in the bread and circuses per se, but in the willingness of the people to sell their rights as freemen for full bellies, and the excitement of the games Of course, now we have the games on TV, and we can have it on big screen TVs, with surround sound <laughs> which would serve to distract them. From the other human hungers, which bread and circuses can never appease. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. Man does not live by bread alone. Yeah, there's steak and potatoes. No, no, that's not what he means. He's talking about the other hunger. The hunger of community. The hunger of fellowship. The hunger of camaraderie. The hunger of being social animals. The social bonds of a free society that only come from a society that allows their neighbor to freely give to their needs. If you're not allowing your neighbor to freely give to your needs or your wants or your desires, if you're compelling the offerings of your neighbor to take care of the needs of society, You're not going to develop the social bonds of society, of a free society. You're going to develop the binding of fealty. You're going to go back into the bondage of Egypt, which is what Rome was doing. And Marcus Cicero saw that this was the problem. They were willing to sell their rights. Now, some don't want to sell their rights. They want to keep their rights, but they just want to jump off the pinnacle. They don't want to lay down their life for their fellow man. They want to imagine they're laying down their life for God by tempting God to take care of them by not actually seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which is a network of people who are actually learning what it means to love one another. You see the, see the problem here? So, if we're going to understand the metaphor of the stones, being made bread, it is easier if we understand the altars of clay and stone, which I mentioned, And but here we have the links to those articles on the page. And those altars of clay and stone were a social safety net that was set up by Moses, set up by Abraham. Abraham was setting up these altars of clay and stone. Even the Romans came across a quote the other day in a book about ancient Roman. System, the early days of charity in ancient Rome, going back 700 years before Christ. And people would put their offerings on clay altars or through little mounds. Why did they do that? Because the priests of their society would pick those offerings up and redistribute it according to the needy of society. So all, all, uh, a priest of their society would do is he would pile up a mound of dirt or he could pile up a mound of stones that would become his altar or another one, they had footstool altars where they'd put three stones on the ground and another big flat stone on top. So anything set on that altar or crossing that altar was now belonged to the priest. It was burnt up to the person who gave it. Now that priest would distribute it to the needy. And they did that so that it was very understood. You couldn't, you couldn't sit back and say, oh, you know the the brown cow that I have out in the field, you can take that. No, you know, you had to actually take it to the place. Cause then he could say later, well, he gave that to the ministry. No, I didn't mean that cow. I meant that brown cow. <laughs> so they, they created a system where you actually, I mean, they, even the Romans did this with their Temple of Janus. You had two gates. You had a gate, you brought stuff in, and a gate that went out. So they, the priests were not distributing stuff that was not already given. And, and they started with a system that was freely given. And then they moved to a system where you wrote down what was given. And then when there was there was produce coming from that, it was like an investment house then you would get a share back. And that's the beginning of this. Like stockbrokers, Ephesus did the same thing. A lot of bookkeeping involved for that. But the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. It works in a much different way. Old Testament did it that way with free will offerings. New Testament did it that way with charitable offerings. And those altars were the practice of pure religion which had been promoted by Abraham and Moses. But if you don't understand that the altars were a system of social welfare, it was not a superstitious deal where you were just burning up sheep, burning up bread, burning up oil, you know, just throwing all this stuff on the fire when there were widows and orphans to be taken care of. Now, the Pharisees knew this. They had their ritual sacrifices too. But then there was a way they could take certain things out of the sacrifice before they burned up the sheep and then they turned that into a commercial enterprise. And of course they could turn these things into money that was, and gold and silver. And then of course they invented this tax, which was in the month of Adar. And they were about to collect that and then Jesus comes in with a string whip and you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And suddenly, They weren't going to make the money that year they thought they were going to make. And that's why Christ had to be crucified. And then that's why Christians were persecuted because the Christians who could see this light that was showing why we had so much corruption at that time in government. I mean, Caesar Augustus was one of the richest men also in the world. But he would go up there. They had a little hut like the early Roman huts made out of clay and you'd bend these twigs over and you'd cover it with, daub it with mud and everything, a little hut and they have this leather-like door. And they lived in those huts. Well, he had one of those constructed up there and he would come out of that hut every morning like that's where he slept. Nobody talks about the tunnel that goes over to the more lavish quarters where he actually slept. (laughs) But... uh, yeah, the the wages of unrighteousness they talk about, the reward of unrighteousness which they talk about in the New Testament, which you can read about in in uh in the epistles. They're the results of covetous practices, of going to men who exercise authority and force the contributions of your neighbor. Under the threat of being arrested Of their property being taken away, of them being thrown into jail, and even if they resist being shot. Augustus Caesar was the son of God of that that kind of system. Right today, at the time of this recording, Biden is supposedly in charge of the system of the United States. But they both operate by force. And they both provide benefits through covetous practices. Augustus Caesar, one of his campaign promises was a return to the republic. Now they want to return to the democracy. Of course, it was never supposed to be a democracy. Democracies get you in trouble. All of the early forefathers of the American Constitution were opposed to democracy. But people don't even know the distinction. Of course, we have articles that explain that distinction. But the most important thing is not learning everything that we have to offer on this mega site of information. It's learning to care about one another. Stop being the masses that have developed an appetite for benefits and become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others. And start seeking the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. Like I said in Matthew 21. He foretells he's going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees. Because they don't understand this. They don't want to understand it. And when they're faced with the explanation. They hate Christ. Most of them. Some of them actually repented. But what? What had actually gone on, and we talked about this before, and we'll talk, we have lots of articles on baptism, rabbinical baptism, what Herod was doing, uh, what system he was creating, he built the temple of Jerusalem, he built the temple of Roma. and over there Netanyahu's got, well they don't have a temple yet, but they have all the, they have this system of social welfare. He just rolled it back a little bit and the country started prospering. If we actually went back to the pure religion of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have any more ministers that have, that are worth 25 million dollars. As a matter of fact, in order to be an actual ordained minister of Jesus Christ, you have to do what Jesus Christ did back there in Corinthians. You know, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich, might be well off. And and of course all his all his ministers, they were told to do the same thing. You know, sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. That they they put themselves in a position. And and they had to do it at that time because so many people had already. Now, John the Baptist, I think some of these fishermen, Peter, I don't think he was. So, therefore, probably Andrew was not. They were not in this system. That's why they were called idiotes in the Greek, which doesn't mean they were unlearned. It doesn't mean that they were idiots, even though that is where we get the word idiot. It means that they were unregistered. It doesn't mean they were unlearned men. They were unregistered. They did not register with the rabbinical baptism of Herod, where you joined his system of social welfare through compelled offerings. You know, a system like what FDR offered you and your parents and your grandparents. That system was a departure from the ways of America, a ways of the republic. A ways, the ways of Jesus Christ. It was a departure from pure religion and an entrance into public religion. But anyway, we'll continue this this afternoon. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless.